0: I could have two approaches to this podcast today. Number one, I suppose I could do a lot of research and present some of my findings to you and hope that it's thrilling and intriguing, or I could do a bunch of unresearched babble just based off things that I've thought about. I think I will do the latter. I've been thinking very hard about this. Yeah, I think I'll do the latter today. All right, so folks, I got to ask you about time. What do you think about time? Where is time? Is it on your watch? Is it on your calendar? Is it in the mirror when you look at yourself? Do you go, huh, a lot of time has passed. I'm looking older. This is a man-made creation. Time is a concept. Exact time. So let's get deep in a really weird way. Let's get deep right out of the gates and talk about time. This concept that today is a Sunday in the month of June at around 10 a.m. right now. All of those things I just said did not come with the Earth's manual. So planet Earth has human beings. We know that. We are Earthlings. But how we structure our time, how we structure our lives, how we organize our approach to living is all based on these man-made concepts. Even age, when I say I'm 36 years old, what am I really saying? So let's break this down. And like I said, this is all unresearched. I know we could probably trace it back to the Phoenicians or the Sumerians or the ancient Romans, and I could do a big old fat history lesson. But let's just talk about it in layman's terms. So without time, without calendars, without ages, all these man-made concepts, we would just have seasons, you know, that comes with the earth. It seems cold. All right. So we've decided to call that winter heats up. That looks like summer. Things are growing from the earth. Let's call that spring. Leaves are falling from the trees. Let's call that fall. Okay. All right. So seasons, you know, at least I could see them with my own eyeballs. The way we know seasons, winter, summer, spring, and fall. Okay. But when we say our age, we're talking about that moment we emerge from our mother's loins. We come into the world on that date. And then every 365 years, we are a new age. Plus one. Plus one. Plus one. 365. That's just the magic number. 365. Hey, you made it another 365. So for me, I'm 36. And then I'll be 37. And then I'll be 38. What if I just kept going and that's what the podcast was? Just me counting? (laughs) This just becomes Sesame Street. And then 39, the count. And then 40. But 365, this magic number. Everybody put their phones down. No Googling. As I'm telling you my thoughts about time and the concepts of how we structure our lives, don't Google it and say, well, where does that come from? The number 365. That amount of days goes by. We chalk up another year of life. And that's how we feel older. Now, I know developmentally, when we look in the mirror, we could gauge, yeah, you know something, I'm an adolescent or I'm an early adult or now I'm middle-aged or now I'm elderly. But we get very specific when it comes to our ages because we've decided that every 365 days, we're a year older. And there's a stigma connected to certain ages. Oh, he's over the hill or, oh, he's almost 40 and people start to feel like they need to accomplish more based on specific ages, or sometimes when we reflect back, we like the concept of how we can structure time to see what we have achieved in life. In my 30 years I've done this, in the next 30 years I'd like to do that. We are a society of to-do lists. Here's the things we've done, here's the things we'd like to do. But breaking it down even further than that. The man-made concept of calendars... You know, it lets us know what's going to be going on throughout the 365 days in that year. We break it down into months and into weeks. And we have these calendars, September, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May. And we look at these calendars every day and they let us know where we are in life. Would we know where we are in life without these calendars? Like for me personally, it's a feeling You know, when it gets dark a little earlier and it's football season and it gets a little colder, that's a feeling that comes upon me. But do I have to look at a calendar and go, all right, now it's late November, so this is how we're going to feel? What triggers what? Is it me looking at the calendar and knowing that this is the feeling that's coming? Or is it me having the feeling and just knowing where we are on the calendar? And then how about the holy days on that calendar? All man-made. All man-made. A lot of them based in religion of course, and we call these holy days holidays on our calendar, and they let us know what to feel on those days. Think about all these man-made concepts of time. Like, who decided? 24 hours is one day. Well, what's an hour? That's 60 minutes. Well, then what's a minute? 60 seconds? Where was this meeting when everybody was so specific and official with choosing how time is going to be measured? We say things like, that was a quick hour. Or God, these minutes are dragging. So I guess it helps us organize how we feel about time passing. We're actually able to say, "Wow, it's only six p.m. feels so much later." Or God, it's eleven p.m. already. Man, I wish it was earlier. When we say things like this, it's because we've all been indoctrinated into looking at a clock and allowing that to measure how we feel about a certain moment. It's how we organize our entire day. It's how we organize our jobs. It's how we organize our meals. It's how we organize our sleep. It's how we organize our entire lives. But thinking that it is man-made trips me out. I know you could trace it back to something, but probably not scientific. You could ever show me evidence that that is what an hour needs to be. 60 minutes. An hour, that's a concept. Science is where there's proof, right? Scientific proof with evidence that you can prove to me this is what a day is, 24 hours. I'm not sure. It kind of just sounds like a group of people many, 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 many years ago sat down and agreed upon these things. They were the committee of time. I know it sounds like fiction when I'm describing it this way, but it's probably not far from that, right? So if we removed all of it, what if we just removed all of it? Or if it didn't exist in the first place, how would we wander through life? How? How would we wander through life? We just say, yeah, it's a young person. Yeah, it's a middle-aged person. That's an older person. How old are they? I don't know. We haven't created that thing called age based on advancing it by one every 365 days. We would never be late to anything. We would never be early to anything. You just show up at things. Hey, you're here now. I assume a lot of specific times and calendars and structuring our lives this way is based in commerce Capitalism, jobs, you know, the ability to align our lives with other lives and travel. You know, I know we need it in every aspect of our lives. I know we need time, calendars, ages. I get all that. But maybe this would be a great twilight zone. What if none of it existed? I can't even tell if this is a profound question or if you're just like, move on to the next shit. I will. I will move on to the next shit. But you just think about that for one moment. The next time you say your age out loud, what are you really saying? It's a man-made concept. Here's another thought I had. Are we human beings really fit for this planet? Are we really? I know in many ways we are because the oxygen works nicely for us. The whole breathing thing. In procreation, we're populating this planet. You know, we're adding more lives, more sources of energy, more minds to help it evolve. I get that. So it's a natural process of evolution that's been going on for millions of years. But in many ways, there are some instances that you could look at planet Earth and how we fit into it and go, "Eh, it's not a great fit without a lot of our inventions. It's not like the perfect fit humans on planet Earth. For instance, that sun, you know, that sun, we have to wear sunblock. We have to wear hats. We can't just hang out in the sun all day develop skin cancer. So sunblock, man-made invention. It's good. It helps us adapt to living on this planet. How about purifying water? Water's the most abundant resource on the planet, but you don't just go to the ocean and take a sip. You don't even just go to a lake or a river and just start drinking it. You'll die. So we have created a system to purify the water. But if you go back many, many years ago, Before sunblock and before water purification, were people just dying from skin cancer? Or were people just adapting to drinking filthy water? I don't know. So all these things that are man-made, I'm pointing out, it's interesting to think about their function, how necessary they truly are for us to feel like we're a comfortable fit for this planet. See, I look at the world the way it is, an urbanized world, an industrialized world, where I have running water where I live and electricity. I turn on lights. I flush toilets. I use a dishwasher. I use a washing machine. I use a microwave. I use an oven. I use a barbecue. I use a vehicle for transportation. This is just what life is to me. But planet Earth as is naturally has none of that. These are all human creations that have been implemented into the world that we say that's normal now. Well, that's how we should live on planet Earth. So we've made all these changes from sunblock to purified water to industrializing this world, urbanizing this world. We've created all sorts of social systems, political systems. We've created all sorts of conflict, all these man-made creations. That's how we say the world is. That's the world today with time and calendars and all these things that the earth didn't come with initially. We've just evolved into this lifestyle. And now it's normal, and we go with the flow, and we don't question enough things. And then I have a weird night's sleep, and I have all these crazy dreams, and then I turn on the microphone and start recording this podcast, and I point them out. So you, on the receiving end of this, if you're one of the very nice people that listen to this, you're probably thinking, huh, guess I never thought of that. Or you're thinking, who cares? Why even point that out? What does it matter? You know, Most people can live a happy life without questioning things. I can't. Every day of my life, I have to question things. That's my comfort zone. Kind of makes me neurotic. Kind of makes me a Larry David, more of a Woody Allen type. Even Woody Allen in the documentary. It's funny, sometimes I have to talk about these comics who have bad reputations for things that they did outside of the limelight. And I'm just talking about their genius side. Like when I do mention Louis C.K., you know, a lot of people immediately, they start thinking of the most recent scandals. Instead, I'm just talking about some of the brilliant things they said. Let's compartmentalize. But yeah, Woody Allen said in his documentary, he has a tougher time looking at the world just at face value without making jokes. It's easier for him with every interaction he has, with every observation he has of the world, it's just easier. It's natural for him to make jokes. He couldn't imagine, you know, even going 10 minutes of his life without trying to find something weird enough in a certain thought or a concept or a comment for it to be deemed humor. I feel that as well. I mean, Woody Allen summed it up a little more eloquently than I just did, but it's true, and that's why I like stand-up comics. Because they're living in this world with all of us, yet the best ones are seeing it a little differently and pointing those things out to us. And we go, "Huh, that's funny. That is a funny observation. I've never thought of it that way. Or, hey, I've always noticed that too, but thank you for saying that. All right, that's a tough thing to transition out of. Just starting off with that many weird thoughts and then trying to just transition out of it. But there's a few more things I do want to get to here in episode 19. Welcome in, everybody. Buckle up. Uh, Local news. Local news. Anybody watching that anymore? Is anybody? I would say 100% of my friends in my age range are not watching the local news. They are not watching KTVU. They are not watching ABC, KGO. They're not. They're getting their news elsewhere. I fully understand the role of local news as opposed to national news. National news, you know, covering the biggest stories in the nation, local news, letting you know what's going on in your community. And I used to watch it when I lived in San Diego. I watched the local news at night. Maybe because I knew some of the reporters, or I knew some of the anchors, or the sports guys, so I tuned in. I kind of liked the familiarity of, oh yeah, I was in the press box with that guy, or yeah, I know that person. And you watch the news, and you learn a few things that are going on around your neighborhood, around your town, or in the towns around you. So I kind of liked it. You know, I got in the routine of even recording the news. God, was I an old soul. In my mid-twenties, recording the news? In case I missed it. Hey fellas, I gotta leave the bar early tonight. Can't miss the news, but I liked it. Moved to the Bay Area, or moved back to the Bay Area in 2013. Tuned into the news on the first night I was here and just didn't like it. I don't know what happened. And I haven't really watched local news since. Now, I do read the Chronicle and the Marin IJ online, so you know I'm up to date. I'm informed on local news. But this past week, I wanted to watch local news because the elections. I voted. I wanted to see the Gavin Newsom storyline. I wanted to see even more locally here in Marin County. My friend, Mary Jane Burke, running for superintendent, she won. So I wanted to see if there was any local coverage of that, all the propositions, and it was remarkably bad. And I don't just want to be a critic, because actually the word critic is something I want to break down a little later, but I was watching and thinking, how do they still exist? The local news telecasts, how do they still exist? I honestly don't know who's watching. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe ratings say that a lot of people are tuning in, but the reporting was really rugged. You know, it just seemed like filler, like they would send it out to a reporter in the field and that person would talk for about two minutes. And at the end of those two minutes, you'd go, I didn't learn anything. You know, their lips were flapping. I know they were saying words in English that I do understand, but there was no content. There was no substance. And then they throw it back to the anchor desk and they're shuffling papers and talking to analysts at the anchor desk with them. And they brought in a Republican analyst and a Democratic analyst, and they were just yelling at each other. And they weren't friendly. They weren't listening. It was just a reflection of this ugly aspect of society where we don't listen anymore. And you just get pigeonholed into being on the left or on the right. And if you're on the right, the left will hate you. And if you're on the left, the right will hate you. There's really no common ground. It's so ugly. Even local news and local politics reflected this ugly aspect of this dangerous two-party system we're in right now. I say right now, that we've been in for a long time. But back to the idea of local news coverage, this has to be extinct in the next 30 years, right? This idea that, you know, kids like me would go study broadcast journalism in college and say, it's my dream to be an man like Ron Burgundy. God, is that a thing of the past? You know what they start these reporters at? These reporters in the field will say, thanks, Tom, earlier today, a three-car pileup on the Richmond Bridge. More details coming up later. And they speak in those voices still. And they're very serious. These people are making about forty-five, forty-six thousand dollars $46,000 a year when they start. It's not enticing enough. Sure, you get to be on TV. And I guess there's a very small level of celebrity status they can enjoy if they get recognized by one out of 1,000 people for being on TV. But I bring this up because I actually thought that was a desirable profession at one point, to be on the local news, to be a local sports reporter, or even... Not a weather guy, but why not? Or to make your way up to a news anchor like the great Dennis Richmond. See, I grew up with Dennis Richmond, Elaine Corral, Mark Abanez, Channel 2, KTVU. And I liked it. I thought they were celebrities. That's why the movie Anchorman is so damn funny. It's total satire, but it's kind of based in truth, right? The anchor man. He was like a very important person in society. In American history... When you look back on the Edward Murrows and the Walter Cronkites, they have played a role in families' living rooms for many years. But that shit is a thing of the past. You look at these anchors now and you go, you're just a talking head. You read the teleprompter, you have a lot of hair products. I find myself looking at their outfits a little more and just tuning out what they're talking about. That prominent role of being a news anchor, that is a thing of the past. Simply because I don't know who's getting their news that way. Ratings have to be down. I don't even have to look. I'll just declare that right now. That's the theme of this podcast. Unresearched babble today. So I'm assuming local news ratings are down, down, down. They go down, down, down in a flaming ring of newscasts. Which means you're not getting the advertising revenue you once got. Which means you can't pay people the top salaries anymore. So who's directing these newscasts? Who's producing these newscasts? And even the talent that they're able to hire? Everybody's agreeing to either work for less or saying, you know what? I'm done with this profession. So the quality is just terrible. Okay, I'm going to stop there because I did write down a couple of things about being a critic. Me, personally, I don't consider myself to be such a critic, but of course I am. And guess what? You all are also. Because every time you go to a movie, you leave and you immediately evaluate, did I like it? Did I not like it? And you start thinking about why. Every time you go to a restaurant, every bite you take, do I like this or do I not like this? So we are all low-level critics. That's how we consume the world. We're not just a bunch of robots eating all the food and going, that was fine. We don't just watch all TV shows and movies and go, that was fine. We don't just listen to all podcasts and go, that was fine. We have taste. We all have different tastes in everything. So we all become critics. So even though Yelp is a new concept, you know, we have to go to Yelp to see which restaurants are in the four-star, five-star range or Rotten Tomatoes. We got to see which movie is receiving the best scores from the critics. We got to see this. We got to see this. We got to see this. I honestly want to ask the question, why? Why, why, why do critics guide society in many ways? Why don't I just pick a restaurant and go to that restaurant? Why don't I just pick a TV show, pick a movie? Everything has a rating system now and it's in our face. Even podcasts. My wife, she was looking for a gardening podcast. Which one did she pick? The one with the best ratings. Here's the real reason why I'm bringing it up. The people that create the art, or the people that create the food at the restaurant, the chefs, or the directors of these movies, or even video games for a moment, those are all reviewed. These people are brave enough to create. It takes courage to put your work out there. Even authors, they all get reviewed on Goodreads and Amazon. Anybody who's brave enough to create and produce some art and put it out there for mass consumption, they do have to deal with the critics. And critics aren't bad people. But I just wish that those people that were brave enough to create were not exposed to the actual critiques because not only might it be painful, but it might stifle them from continuing to create. You think about that. Think about, you know, a movie you liked. I guarantee somebody else didn't. And if that somebody else works for a newspaper or a website where people read those reviews, they put it out there that it was terrible. For instance, my friend who made a movie, The House of Tomorrow. And he actually got the movie made, funded, produced. It's now in local theaters throughout America. The House of Tomorrow, which I saw and I liked. I decided, I don't know why, I just decided to go to Rotten Tomatoes. And I read all of the critics' reviews. And it got about a 78%. That's pretty good, I guess. But it's not great. I thought the movie was great. But the critics, there was a New York Times review that I read. And there were some people that didn't like it. And they explained why. And some of these people attacked the screenwriting. And some of these people attacked the production value or the nuances. And I just thought, oh, how shitty for my friend if he ever reads these reviews. He dedicated every ounce of energy, every ounce of focus. His life became this movie. He wrote the script. He helped cast the movie. He went all around America to all the film festivals. And by the time he finally puts this in a theater, some schlub who works for some rag, you like these negative terms I'm using, some schlub who works for some rag, sits in a movie seat with their junior mints and popcorn for two hours. And in those two hours, they might rip it apart. Something ugly about that. There's something really ugly about that. Yeah, I saw the movie. I didn't like it. Now I'm going to write about it and have a lot of people read about it, which I guess is fine because that's part of society. But when the actual artiste has to read it or they're exposed to it, that's got to be painful. My other friend, he's a producer, a concept artist at Hangar 13. They made a video game called Mafia 3. I don't know anything about video games, but I just know that I love Mafia 3 because my friend helped create it. Great guy, great artist, genius in my opinion when it comes to his art skills. But I did look at some of the reviews for the game, and there were some good ones, and there were some harsh ones. There were some bad ones. And I was thinking, oh, shit, he dedicated so much of his time and his life to this video game, and working with a team, he collaborated with a bunch of different people, blood, sweat, and tears to make a video game. A lot goes into it. Some jerk plays it for about 20 minutes and goes, nope, sucks. Does that actually impact how people consume the game? It does, yeah. Some people will read a review, and before even playing the video game, they'll go, "Uh uh-oh, this is going to suck. Terrible way to approach anything in life with preconceived notions that it's going to be terrible. I know there's still free thinkers out there, but it's amazing to think about how influential critics are. And now i got to trace it back to myself. There were, in San Diego, writers for the newspapers that critiqued radio. I was so young and naive when I first started off in sports radio that I didn't even know that there were media critics who would listen to our radio shows Listen to all the hosts and either they would like us and write glowing reviews or they would hate us and shred us. I got shredded a few times and the immediate response was not only anger, but it almost takes the wind out of you. It's like a deflating feeling because when you do anything and it's just human instinct, you want to be liked, which is kind of a ridiculous human instinct because nobody should be universally liked. That should not be anybody's goal. Nobody should say I want to be liked by everybody. It's a bad way to live your life. And I had to learn it the hard way, folks. And my uncle, who is a critic, or was a critic at the Cleveland Plain Dealer, a music critic, I remember calling him. It was like 2005. And I was like, there's this writer, this bastard who put a bad review in the newspaper about something I said on a radio show. And my uncle just said, Josh, did you really expect everybody to like you? And that question stayed with me. Because the answer is so obviously, no, of course not. Nobody does. Even my absolute favorites have been criticized. My favorites in anything have been criticized, which is a weird thought. Like my favorite comic, you know, somebody's probably viewed that person and said, not funny. My favorite restaurant, somebody's probably eaten there and said, yeah, the food's awful. My favorite author, somebody's probably read his books or her books and said, yeah, no talent. So I get it, we all have our different tastes and perspectives and viewpoints. But when my uncle said that, I thought, damn, you're right. I guess some of these media critics just not feeling my radio show. And some did. You know, some were nice. And that did feel good. But the idea that it's debilitating, you know, makes you wanna, oh, do I stop? It's such a shitty response that people have. But the Chargers GM, A.J. Smith, let me give him credit. The old Chargers GM, he said, when I start listening to the fans, that's when I will be in the stands with them. As in, you got to have tunnel vision. If you're actually creating art that you're proud of at any level or creating anything that's out there for mass consumption, then you got to stand by it and just have those convictions that, you know what, this is me. I'm doing something that I care about, that I love, and even though it might get ripped apart by a video game critic, by a restaurant critic, by just somebody on a message board, by a movie critic, by a Goodreads critic. I'm going to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. See, Adam Sandler, he's a perfect example. He's never received one positive review. Never. Now, I'm not going to act like Adam Sandler's movies are Oscar worthy. None of them are. You know, there've been a few good ones, but mainly you watch it and you go, let me get some cheap laughs, right? He's done a few serious ones. Like Spanglish was pretty good. Punch Drunk Love was pretty good. But for the most part, you know, Sandler movies. Just all hijinks and cheap laughs. But the critics always destroy him. And what does he do? The same thing. He doesn't change his ways because he knows this is what I want to be doing. It's admirable. I can respect that. Even if I don't like what somebody is doing, I can respect it. If they keep doing it because they love it and they trust the process and they feel like it's their calling and they disregard all the negativity. That's inspiring to me. And I don't want to sound like a hypocrite, because, of course, I know sometimes I listen to a Saturday Night Live musical guest, and I go, oh, this is so bad. This is so bad. And then I talk about it on the podcast. But still, deep down, I'm happy for that musician. You know, they don't care what I think. Hopefully, they're strong enough to persevere and continue doing what they love to do, regardless of the critics, the critics, the critics. As long as the people creating aren't altered by the critics, then it's all good. But think about how many people, what percentage of people, let's just say in America, fear how they will be evaluated. This is why people have such a fear of public speaking. The act of actually speaking is not the fear. It's that there are some people in that audience who are judging them. Think about how many great creators of the arts have never created anything based out of fear of being evaluated. I guess that's survival of the fittest, right? You know, are the people making music right now in the world the best musicians or are they just the bravest with some talent? I I want to sprinkle in the with some talent comment, but really a lot of the people that step up and say, I'm going to follow my dream and create something for people to watch or for people to read or for people to taste. It takes that courage mixed with talent, but all those people that don't have the courage, the bravery, we'll never know. We'll never know. So there's some advice. Don't live an empty life. Follow your path. What is this, a graduation speech? All right, wrapping it up this way. Episode 19. 19. You know why that's a great number? I think you do. One name, Tony Gwynn. That was his number. So when I moved to San Diego in 1999, there were really two big names in the world of sports. And as a sports fan, I knew those names very well. Junior Seau, who I've talked about, Tony Gwynn. Two professional teams, Chargers Padres, two of the greatest. And you could say Junior Seau was the greatest Charger of all time, was the greatest San Diego Charger of all time. You remember when San Diego had a football team? Because they only went to one Super Bowl and he was clearly the face of the team, clearly the star of the team, the great linebacker who passed away. Well, sadly, Tony Gwynn has also passed away, 54 years old. Nothing sadder. I mean, that city, you talk about as a sports city, have they been kicked in the nuts time and time and time again? Junior Seau's suicide, Tony Gwynn's death, and oh yeah, they lose the Chargers to LA. I mean, San Diego, it's not like viewed as a big sports city, but there's great sports fans down there. Sad times. But Tony, because I'm thinking episode 19, got to reflect on the number 19, his jersey number, there was... Such legendary status surrounding him because there's not a long list of Padres legends. This is the team that has so many interchangeable parts. You know, they're like how the Warriors used to be. They had stars when they were young. Trade them away. But Tony remained. He could have gone elsewhere. He remained. He meant something to the city. There's not a lot of athletes like that anymore. Tony defined loyalty. He went to San Diego State, played his entire career in a Padres uniform. And then what did he do after? Yeah, he went back to San Diego State to coach the baseball team. And oh yeah, he was nice to everybody. And I know that sounds obvious, like, well, shouldn't he be? How many athletes are not nice to everybody? Everybody in San Diego has a Tony Gwynn autograph or a picture with Tony Gwynn. Everybody in San Diego has met Tony Gwynn at some point and has a great story about meeting Tony Gwynn. You know, the modern day athlete, I don't really think it reflects Tony Gwynn's character. I feel like the modern day athlete is a lot of me, 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 self-promotion, My endorsements, my Twitter and Instagram followers, my salary, my bank account. Me, 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 me. Tony was selfless. You know, it's great to reflect on athletes like this. And now you can see why I'm so connected to nostalgia. When I go, I yearn for the times of how they used to be. Yeah, the Tony Gwynns of the world, they do deserve a little more recognition. Did he ever win a championship? No. Was his style of hitting... Sports Center highlight-worthy? Most nights? No. He's kind of a slap hitter. Was he drilling home runs over the wall throughout the late 90s during the steroid boom? No. Was he releasing rap albums on the side or looking to have cameos in Hollywood movies? No. Just loved baseball. Good teammate. Good guy. Good to the fans. And then it all ended because he developed cancer, and even Tony attributed the cancer to the fact that he's been chewing tobacco his entire career. You know, going back to 81, when he was in the minors, he said that's when he started chewing, and it continued and continued and continued, and addiction is a wild beast. Couldn't kick it. So Tony believed that that was the cancer that took his life, and that's a story that needs to be studied, because in a weird way, a lot of these professional baseball players, they make chew look cool. Now, I know it's gross, fundamentally just putting tobacco into your lip and spitting. It's a gross idea, right? But when you see your favorite baseball player doing it, think about how influential these guys are. For me, I remember as a kid watching athletes with a big old dip in their lip thinking, oh, that's cool. And what a skewed vision I had, but they were the stars on the field, so anything they did seemed cool, even chew. And I've had plenty of dips throughout the years, not in a very long time, but that was probably what initially made me want to try it. Hey, Barry Bonds dips. Hey, Tony Gwynn dips. Give me a little skull. Pack a little skull in the lip. And then, let's play catch. Get your mitt. Let's pack a dip. Let's play some catch. Let's emulate the stars. How dangerous is that mentality? To emulate our favorite celebrities? But when it comes to athletes who look cool doing anything, I mean, there are little kids, little leaguers, high school kids, who look at that and go, yep, yeah, I'll be doing that. So hopefully, Tony Gwynn's passing becomes a big wake-up call to a lot of people. And I know it's so much easier said than done so. Because Tony Gwynn passed away and attributed his chewing tobacco to his death, then, hey, everybody stop. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. People tend to overlook that narrative and go, yeah, but look how many people didn't die and chew tobacco. It's always easier to say that. It is a weird substance, though. You ever just think about that? Because the first time you ever take it, you'll spin. The first time you ever chew tobacco, you'll get nauseous. Could you imagine trying to hit a 95-mile-per-hour fastball with some Copenhagen in your lip? Of course not. But these guys, they reach a point of addiction where they rely on it, where it actually helps steady the nerves, steady the emotions. That's dangerous when you rely on the substance for your craft. I have the opposite thought every time. God, how jittery would I be if I ever went into the batter's box with a dip? I'd be like shaking, sweating, turning pale ready to just barf on home play, but the pros are a different ball game. All right, that'll do it. I had some other bullet points. I always feel like I'm about to talk about Louis C.K. Because there is a big Louis C.K. storyline out there, but I'll get to that in episode 20. As of right now, I'm just about to say goodbye, but before I do, you can follow me on Twitter if you'd like. Twitter I still like, by the way. All the other social media kind of bothers me that I'm on it. Twitter I still like. Twitter's pretty good. It's okay. I mean, I still got to moderate, but Twitter's pretty good at Jay Rosenberg nine five seven. I'll be putting these podcasts up there. You could also check out my book, suddenly facing reality on Amazon. And of course on iTunes, leave a review for the here we go podcast. And I'll probably keep these coming at you throughout the summer as I take over daddy daycare duties. Oh yeah. It's daunting. Daunting daddy daycare duties coming at you this summer. So maybe there will be some more baby sounds in the background. That's not the worst thing, right? I mean, when it's your baby, you're okay with it. I guess most people would be like, really? Baby sounds? There are nice people out there. There are. There are nice people out there who are okay with other people's babies screaming. But for the most part, I'd say the majority of society, not okay with it. Not okay. Even though people pretend they are on an airplane or in a restaurant. If it's another kid, then it's just like driving you crazy. But if it's yours, oh, if it's yours, then it's just so cute. All right. Episode 19 is now in the books. I'll talk to you soon.